All right, so what we're talking about today is the subject of Israel and um, the subject of, of Jesus. Is Jesus Israel? And, you know, what's that relationship? So, uh, I guess I should put up here <coughs> the full title. Is Jesus Israel? I mean, that's really the question. And uh, the subsidiary question to this is, if Jesus is Israel and the church is in Jesus, then surely the church is the new Israel. You see? that makes sense to you? And so, what we'll be doing is that we'll be examining that question. It's a very important question when you're determining end time scenarios. If you've already made up your mind that the church is the new Israel in Jesus, uh, what I've been teaching you can, cannot be right. It has to be wrong. Okay? Um, so we need to investigate this to see whether we're on the right track. Because when it comes to our millennialism or post-millennialism or even in a sense, historic premillennialism, uh, they all have this idea that Jesus is the new Israel. Okay, not all historic premills do, but some some of them do. Um, so let's let's dive into this. We did a little bit last week, but uh, let's let's get cracking here. First thing I want to do is read to you some uh, quotations so that we understand kind of what we're dealing with. So here's the first one. first one comes from Graham Goldsworthy, who's an amillennialist, book According to Plan. And this is page, uh, what page? I've got the dog ear here. 141. And so he says this, Israel is called God's son. Rarely is the term used in the Old Testament, but the relationship shines through these events. He's been talking here uh, about uh, the Exodus motif and so on. Only later will the full import of this be apparent as the perfect son of God comes to fulfill in his own life all God's promises for Israel. But even though the people imperfectly grasp the significance of the redemption from Egypt, they perceive that it calls for their response. And he talks about um, them going into covenant. So, here's the the line. Uh, Only later will the full import of this be apparent as the perfect Son of God comes to fulfill in his own life all God's purposes for Israel. Okay. So, um, yeah, don't lose your place, Paul. So, what we have in this scenario, okay, from Goldsworthy, is that Jesus is God's Son. Yes? We're okay with that? But Israel, 
another colour. Let's go for green. Israel is also God's son. Okay? So, in this relationship, in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son. Okay? Uh, for example, in Hosea 11.1. 1. And so, in fact, we'll put that, Hosea 11.1. 1. And so, Jesus, we know, is God's son, and we know that Hosea 11.1 1 is, is applied to Jesus. Okay? In fact, uh, let me, I, I should have looked up the reference in Matthew. Just let me get it quickly. Uh, I don't have the verse number, so... Um, It is Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Okay? So, I'm going to do it in red. Keep the colours right here. Matthew 2, 15 quotes Hosea 11, 1 and applies it to Jesus. Okay? Now, so here's the thinking. The thinking is, if Jesus is the true son, then Israel, that was God's son in the Old Testament, all of a sudden, it becomes something that is a projection of the true son. Do you see? So it becomes a type, but not with this pen. Israel becomes a type. Now, if Israel's a type, then you have to have the anti-type, the thing that it's a type of, yes? Uh, another word is shadow. It is a shadow. And if it's a shadow then the shadow is not the, re- the reality, it's the thing cast by the reality. Do you see? So, in this scenario, this interpretation of Israel means that Israel isn't, the, isn't what it's about. Israel's just the type and the shadow of what it's really about. And therefore, don't get focused on the, on the shadow, get focused on the reality. Yeah? You understand the way that, that, that things are, are done there? So this, is, this would be the anti-type and the reality which correspond to these two. Now, now you can see why Goldsworthy says that it would eventually become apparent that all of Israel's promises are fulfilled in the Son, in Jesus. Now, if this is true, if all, all of Israel's promises are fulfilled in the Son, what are some of the promises? Well, land, yes? Land of Canaan. Uh, throne of David. Jerusalem. 
being a great city. For example, Zechariah chapter 8, as Jerusalem being the city of truth. Or um, uh, Jeremiah 33, uh, Jerusalem being uh, the, the Lord is there. Okay? And at the end of Ezekiel, at the end of Ezekiel 48, again, the name of the city will be called that the Lord is there. Okay, so a, a, a blessing for uh, for Jerusalem. Um, also, that uh, that Israel will be a light to the Gentiles. Okay, and that they will receive uh, glory and redemption. All right, so just kind of general terms, but you, you you get all of these promises, okay? And these are to Israel. Remember the nation, and the nation is determined by their relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, not just to Abraham, but to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, the land is part of the Abrahamic covenant. This, obviously, the throne is part of the Davidic covenant. Uh, Jerusalem, that's part of uh, the Davidic covenant. Okay, like the Gentiles, this is actually originally part of the Mosaic covenant, but it's part of the Mosaic covenant that is because it's the original intention of God. Okay, it's repeated in the new covenant. And glory and redemption, of course, is new covenant. And there's something else that I've forgotten. What is it? Uh, temple and priesthood. Which is part of the priestly covenant. All right. So... That's quite a bit of stuff that God's covenanted to do. Now, if uh, if the scenario that Goldsworthy and some others here that you know generally are millennialists, post-millennialists, if that scenario is the correct scenario, then what what I've said about covenants cannot be true. What have I said and re-said about covenants? They cannot be changed. Okay? They cannot be changed. Covenants are only useful if they are uh, interpretatively static. In other words, they they are normative when it comes to interpretation. Yes? They are normative. You want to find out uh, what this means? What's this agreement? What's going to happen? You look at a covenant. 
All right, because the wording of the oaths of the covenant are hermeneutically essential to the, an understanding of the relationships within that agreement. Okay, so you want an illustration that hits you where you know where it's important. The uh, the gospel is part of the new covenant. In fact, it is the new covenant oath. Okay? You believe God gives you what? Everlasting life? Not just everlasting life though. An inheritance. Okay? Kept in heaven for you that's, uh, you know, that doesn't fade away and doesn't perish. And uh, there's another adjective that I can't think of right now. Um he makes you a son and a daughter, an heir of Christ. Okay, All of these things, a new body, glorified body, all of these things are given to you through the covenant that's in the gospel. Or is it? Or is it? Because if that covenant, okay, and the things that are within it, okay, particularly the promise of salvation... Okay, the, the other things that I've said, uh, the, these fill out the picture of salvation. Okay, and if you want to see that, that's what Peter does in his, particularly in his first epistle. He gives you that, that fills out what that salvation is. Um, but the, the fact that you're saved, you have everlasting life, that's part of the gospel, that's part of the oath there. Um, if that covenant can change, what? are the grounds of your assurance. The grounds of your assurance rest on your understanding of the clear meaning of the gospel. Yes? You see? Because your expectation is those words mean what they say. And it's the same with any other covenant. Covenants are hermeneutically normative. They are static. You can't... No jiggery-pokery with the covenants, okay? Which is why in Galatians 3... And in uh, Hebrews 6, two, two authors, Paul and the author to the Hebrews, both speak about the fact that covenants are fixed. Okay? They're the end of any disagreements. Okay? So, but not, not in this view. Not in this view, folks. Covenants change. They transform. They morph. Okay? And uh, remember that uh, Strimple back in, in uh, I think, a second lesson in this book, you know, Strimple gave you that illustration of the boy who was promised wheels and get, got the Ferrari, okay? And he tried to kind of give you a um, kind of, um, it was, I won't call it deception because he didn't mean to deceive. I think he was deceived by his own theology. What he tried to do, though, is he tried to say that that's an analogy of the covenant promises of God. But wheels is vague. Covenants are not vague. Okay? Now, you might mess around with the word wheels. Okay? So, you know, wheels can mean anything. Anything that has, you know, a couple of circular things on the side of it. It can be... Uh, a bicycle, it can be a scooter. I mean, one of those things the kids 
Yeah, it can it can be a, a monocycle, it can be a Rolls Royce. Yes, it can be a horse and wagon. Well, just the wagon actually. It can be a whole all kinds of, of things with wheels. Okay, but but that's not what the covenants are like. So he's completely off. He's actually kind of throwing you a you know a, a googly there as far as. Uh, getting you off off the the right line but that's the what, what this picture does do you see this picture of of Israel being a type and a shadow okay it changes all of this and it puts it back onto Jesus everything's fulfilled in Jesus and we as Christians as part of the church we just happen to be in Christ by by the way how do you know you're in Christ how do you know you're in Christ? Let's have a look at this. Okay. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, um, it might be argued here, but the Lord's, by the Lord's body here in verse 29, he's talking about the physical body of Christ. Okay? But Paul is going from the physical body that is broken to the fact that we are in the body of Christ. So chapter 12, the next chapter, folks, is all about what? The body of Christ. Okay? Yes? Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Do you see that? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 2. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you have, you are an epistle of Christ ministered to us, sorry, by us. I'll write, read that again. I've messed that one up. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are, are an epistle of Christ written by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables or tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. 
and we have such trust through Christ toward God now that we are sufficient, we are not sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he talks about the fact that of the ministry of death engraved on stones, and the gloriousness of the ministry of the Spirit, which is the ministry of the new covenant, and uh, uh, goes on and says in verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. We've had the veil taken away. Why? Because we're in Christ. Do you see that? So, because we're in Christ, um, that's part of the new covenant, folks. That's one of those add-ons in the new covenant. But hold on. If the new covenant doesn't mean what it says, if, it's trans- if it can be morphed and transformed, okay, then how do we know we're in Christ? You say, well, of course we do, because it says that, silly. And I'll say to you, but the Old Testament saints, they read stuff, and they thought they'd got it right. And you say, yeah, but the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. I say, well, they didn't know anything about the New Testament. They didn't know the New Testament was coming. Maybe we're in the same position as them, and a third testament's going to be added later on that we have no idea about. And what that's going to do according to this view, is it's going to say, oh, you know that stuff in the New Testament? Okay, what it really meant was this. Do you understand? You say, well, I don't believe that. I don't care what you believe and don't believe. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, that's exactly what these guys say happened with the Old Testament saints. Why shouldn't it happen to you? Why should you believe that you're on any firmer ground than they were? You say, well, well Christ has come. Well, he's come once. What happens when he comes twice? The second time, maybe he's going to you know, have a reinterpretation. If the covenants don't mean what they say, folks, if they're not static, if they're not normative, who's to say they're not going to morph and transform later on? They've done it once, according to this view. That's the point there. That's the point. And I'm sorry if that was a roundabout way of saying it, but I, but I, I want you to understand that the, this cushy position that these people think that they're in, because they're in Christ, is based on taking God at his word. Well, that's what these guys did. Maybe you can't take God at his word. Because these guys took God at his word, and obviously... These are types and shadows. They just didn't know it. Poor, benighted bunch. Yeah? So, the idea is that the reality and the antitype is here. And you can see, 
that uh, this is one of their strongest proof texts here. Out of Israel I have called my son. That's applied by Hosea to, to Israel, which, is it true? Yeah. And out of Israel I've called my son, which is a quotation of this, by Matthew. And was that, did that happen to Jesus? Okay. So there's a double fulfillment, yes? Is there any problem? <laughs> is, is, is saying that that happened to Jesus a denial that it happened to Israel? No. Especially when you think of, uh, of uh, Numbers 24, which particularly points to this and the, and the meaning behind this points to this and Numbers 24 as well. Which means that it can, you know, he was perfectly right to talk about um, or to reference Hosea 11. All right. So let's read a little bit more of how of how this works. Here's a a little quotation from N. T. Wright, a very influential New Testament scholar. Uh, Wright is not at all bashful about saying that uh, he's a replacement theologian uh, that that uh, the church has replaced Israel okay in fact his uh, one of his major the major planks of his theology is that in the old testament after the babylonian captivity the uh, the, the returnees still saw themselves as being in exile Okay, so they, even though they were back from exile physically, they weren't back from exile in any other way. Spiritually, they were still in exile. Okay, he has a big teaching on that. When is this exile terminated? The exile is terminated in the church, which is in Christ, who is the deliverer, do you see? But the church isn't national Israel. You see, that's the problem. So the people who were in exile aren't the same people that, you know, who are no longer in exile, do you see? It becomes kind of an uh, an amorphous group. Well, he says this. Um, And, you know, he's a great writer, but, uh, so he, he, you know, he, he argues in detail, but you've got to watch his presuppositions. Anyway, this is 261 and 262 of his uh, book, Jesus and the Victory of God. And he says, um, uh, he, made, he makes several points. Okay. He says, uh, well, just bear with me. I'm going to read you half a page. It should be clear from this, and he's quoted a bunch of uh, uh, intertestamental uh, writings, it should be clear from this that though the theme of believing or having faith occupies nowhere near as large a place in the pre-Christian Jewish world as it has across the board in early Christianity, it functions as a theme with the following connotations. First, it is the appropriate stance of the covenant people before their rightful God, and for that matter, of creatures before their maker. Second, it is the thing which marks out the true people of Israel 
at a time of crisis and judgment. Third, it will characterize the people who are restored after the exile. Exile in this terminology that I've just spoken to you about. We may add to this a fourth point. From the literature on the conversion of proselytes, faith in the sense of belief in the one true God and the rejection of pagan idols was of course a vital characteristic for anyone seeking to join the people of Israel. Faith is thus sim- sorry it, faith is thus not simply to be understood with, within the world of first century Judaism in terms simply of religious interiority and sorry about the language it just means just Israel as a nation nor is the vital question of one which occupies so much 20th century writing on the subject namely the shape of faith and its role within religious experience as a whole. What matters is that faith is a crucial part of the definition of Israel at her time of great crisis. Jesus' call for faith was not merely the offering of a new religious option or dimension, it was a crucial element in the eschatological reconstitution of Israel around himself okay the future and in the end the uh, consummation reconstitution of Israel around himself once this dimension of Jesus references to faith is opened up we can see that the characteristic sayings dovetail neatly into the call for repentance which we have studied already the faith which is the concomitant of so many acts of healing is not simply believing that Israel's God can do this, it is believing that Israel's God is acting climactically in the career of Jesus himself. Okay. So, uh, what this means is basically that G- that that the eschatological hope for Israel ends in Jesus. And the reconstitution of Israel happens with those that believe in Jesus. Do you see that? Yes? The reconstitution, in other words, the you know, re-scrambling of Israel, and the, this is Israel now. Okay? Notice what he said about the place of faith. It's faith that is the, is the main thing which denominates what true Israel is. And of course there's some truth to that. But any, and it, but it doesn't, it's not just within the bounds. Remember he uses this terms, uh, this in terms of interiority. But he says it's, it's not just in terms of interiority, which means that it's faith outside of the nation of Israel, which it can be, in, include Gentiles, of course, and if they exercise faith, I'm paraphrasing what he's, what he's saying, they become part of the reconstituted Israel in Jesus. Yeah? See the argument? And it sounds... It sounds so persuasive. It sounds so good. It's like, man, you know. I mean, look at the thickness of this book, dude. I mean, it, this is this is scholarly stuff, and this is volume two. Okay, 
Um, I mean, he has two bigger volumes after this. Okay? And he's writing volume five at the moment. Volume four is 1,600 pages long. Okay? Jesus and the victory of God. And so... um, So that's kind of... It's like... You know, this is attractive stuff. If you're not careful, you get swept off your feet by this stuff. Because not only um, does it appeal to your pride that, I'm, you know, I'm reading a scholar and so on, and it's much better than reading Left Behind, which it is, which it is. Um, but that, uh, you know, you just, you, the argument's so, it's so overwhelming and overpowering and, and uh, forceful. But you've got you to look behind it and think, hold on a minute, I smell a rat here. You know, this is not what the Bible says. It's, it, he waxes lyrical about it, but this is not what the Bible's teaching. We've got to stop where the Bible stops. And if that means that we are obscurantists and, and uh, thought to be dummies, then so be it. You know, wooden literalists and so on. You know, fair enough. We're, then we're wooden literalists, aren't we? That's just the way it has to be. Uh, Strimple here says, I think I dog-eared it so I wouldn't would go straight to it. I've actually read this before. This is earlier, page 87 of uh, Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. The true Israel is Christ. He is the suffering servant of the Lord, this one who is, wonder of wonders, the Lord himself. Turn, for example, to Isaiah 41. Surely the the Old Testament saint, as he or she studied the servant songs of Isaiah, had to be puzzled. Jewish commentators to this day are puzzled. Here Israel is called by God his chosen, his chosen one. Okay, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. Let's go there. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. And then he continues. But as we go to 42, 1 to 7, the Lord says, so 42, 1 to 7, I'm, you're in my territory now, okay, because this is one of my go-to text, but let's read it. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now before the servant was Israel, yes? The people. Now this is, it's a him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Of course that's Quoted in the Gospels, yes, of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. 
He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, the spirit to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give, keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. See, that, I like this stuff because it's saying Jesus is the covenant. Okay, Which covenant? The new covenant as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. So, Strimple says, is it still the nation that is in view as the Lord's servant, or is this now an individual, the Messiah? Well, you answer. Yeah, it's an individual, isn't it? Okay. We know how these verses from Isaiah 42 are interpreted in the Gospels. They are seen as fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, that's because they're about Jesus. But notice how Isaiah goes on to speak in 44, 1 and 2. All right, go to 44, 1 and 2. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, uh, who will help uh, who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Who's that talking about? Israel as a nation, yes? Okay. 21, verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. You are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Okay. 45, 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Okay? And he goes on. If we were to go back on reading here in Isaiah, sorry, if we were to go on reading here in Isaiah, we would see the movement back and forth and the cause for puzzlement clear statements that the nation Israel is the Lord's servant, but also veiled hints that the servant is an individual. Perhaps even Isaiah himself was puzzled, and then quotes 1 Peter 1, uh, 10-12, which I all like to quote. So he goes on to say, page 88, Since Christ is the true Israel, the true seed of Abraham, we are we who are in Christ by faith, and the working of his spirit are the true Israel, the Israel of faith, not of mere natural descent. See how it works? Yeah, see the deduction? Now, does the New Testament actually say that the church is Israel? No, it doesn't, but we're going to look at that later. So, what he's trying to do here Strimple, is that, you know, he first of all, and they do this, that, you know, they make a statement, a bland statement. So, uh, Jesus is the new Israel, and the church is Israel in Christ, okay? And then, what he does, he'll go to the Old Testament, and he'll say, look, the, see, this one's talking about the nation of Israel, but this one is talking about a, an individual who's the servant. And Isaiah 
53 talks about an individual who's a servant and so on. So, in a sense, because they're both called the servant, that means Jesus can be identified with Israel. Yeah? There's the premise. Because they're both God's servant and they're both God's son. Alright? So, um, maybe you can write up there. Um, I should have left myself some room, so I'll have to do it here. Okay? God's servant. Okay? Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. Okay? And then Israel is also God's servant. Okay? Isaiah 41 and 45 and, you know. So, see the picture that they're painting? So, they want you... Now, now, nowhere has the Bible taught that Israel is a shadow. Okay? But the rhetoric is getting you to buy into the fact that Israel is a shadow. Now, it's very important that you understand that. Um, If you are going to ask, well, is Jesus God's son? Yes. Okay? Is Israel God's son? Yes. Same with the servant stuff. Yes. You can go to the Bible. But what about the next move? So, is Israel a type of the Messiah? No. Nowhere in the Bible is Israel a type. Okay? They make Israel a type because they have a certain peculiar typology that they use. Why do they use a typology like that? Because they interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the first coming of Christ. And when you do that, then these promises, if they've been fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, obviously don't mean what they say. You see? So they, you have to start making the land of Canaan a type. You have to make the throne of David a type. You have to make Jerusalem a type. Do you see? So they invent a, a typology for that. And this just backs their typology up. Do you see? But what people don't see is they don't see the smoke and mirrors job. They don't see that we've moved from clear text of scripture and now, you know, now the guy's fiddling behind the curtain. Okay? And pulling out rabbits. Do you see? And we still think we're on biblical territory and they will tell us it's biblical. But, but they've shifted the ground. Because what they're now doing is that they're, they're in their realm of typology and the Bible doesn't say that, that Israel is a type. So, that's, that's kind of how this works here. You've got to be really careful. All right, you ready for a bit more? I thought so, good. <laughs> Let me take a drink here.
So back to Goldsworthy, page 204. <clears throat> the New Testament indicates that not only Christ's deity, but also his perfect and complete humanity is necessary for the gospel of our salvation. While he is God the Creator, the God of Adam, of Abraham, of David, and of the prophets, he is also the truly created man, the last Adam, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and the true prophet. And that's true. You can go and you can look at scriptural verses that say that. Again, a situation foreshadowed. Okay? When you read about foreshadowing or adumbration or types and so on, okay, immediately your smoke and mirrors alarm should go out. Okay, because uh, this is code for them pulling a fast one on you. Okay, and that what they're doing is that they're going to tell you a story based on their typology and their already made up theology, and they're going to claim that's what the Bible teaches. But they're going to use Bible verses that don't say that. Okay. Let's see what he does. A situation foreshadowed in the Old Testament proved to be unexpected by the Jews of Jesus' time. Uh, He's he's one of the people, him, G.K. Bill, some other people, who are very clear about the fact that what God promised in the Old Testament by the prophets and in the covenants had an unexpected fulfillment. Okay, an unexpected fulfillment. Now, if these had an unexpected fulfillment, well, they raised false expectations then, didn't they? I mean, if I'm revealing something to you and I say, oh, listen up. I mean, look, listen to me. I'm going to make a covenant about it too. I mean, I'm so serious about this, I'll actually make a covenant about this. Let's go kill an animal and get serious here. Okay? And uh, you think, oh, okay, okay, this is what you mean by that. Okay, yeah, I got it. Okay, so my expectation is what you've said there. Okay? All right, got it. And then, you know, we go later on in history, and lo and behold, what you expected was wrong. Why? Well, either you didn't pay attention to what was said or what was said misled you. It's one of those two things. And it is not the former. Because he has just said it was unexpected. Why was it unexpected? Because it morphs. Because they didn't know that Israel was a type. They didn't know all of this was typological and, and foreshadowing. They actually thought that God meant what he said. Do you see? Significant figures such as priests and kings who mediated salvation for the many in Israel, point to the one who comes as the true Israelite, representing the many. To their types, the priests and the, and the, 
kings are types. And of course, you know, well, the priests, they, they uh, like the high priest, they uh, made offerings, Day of Atonement and so on. And Jesus is now our high priest, so maybe the high priest was a type of Christ. Maybe. But the high priest was, you know, he was a Levite. Jesus isn't a Levite. He's a Judahite. And um, the kings, well, well, is David a type of Christ? I know it's popular to make David a type of Christ, but is he ever called a type of Christ? Not really, he isn't. You know, how can, how can the, um, the head of the dynasty of which Christ is a part be a type? Okay, I mean, anyway, moving on. On the basis of this interpretation of the prophetic promises, the Jews were waiting for a return of a great crowd of people to the promised land. Even the remnant would be a considerable group. They were not prepared for the true people of God to be one man. One man. You bet they weren't prepared. Why weren't they prepared? Well, yeah, but why weren't they prepared? They weren't prepared because the word hadn't prepared them. That's why what God said hadn't prepared them. They could not see that everything that God had intended for Adam and then for Israel was being fulfilled in the perfectly sinless human existence of Jesus. No, they couldn't. There's a good reason why they couldn't. Because it wasn't. Particularly not at his first coming. Adam was the first head of the human race, but he failed to keep his race in the right relationship to God. What do you mean race? It's him and his wife. (laughs) Not much of a race going on there, you know. And it goes on and and, and it talks about then Israel, you know, being the kind of second Adam, because they love that, you know, uh, all of that stuff. And uh, it says here, Note that the scriptures used by Jesus to defeat the devil's attacks, Deuteronomy 8.3, 6.13 and 6.16, are drawn from Moses' commentary on Israel's failure during the wilderness testing. The meaning is clear. Okay, The meaning of the covenants isn't clear, but, but he's going to tell you what's clear. At his baptism, Jesus is declared to be the true Adam, true Israel. Did you read that at his baptism? You know, the voice from heaven comes down saying, saying, this is my beloved son, okay? And he is the true Adam and he is the true Israel. Did we read that anywhere? Did I miss something? Jesus is declared at his baptism to be the, not in anybody's hearing he wasn't. Immediately after this, the same spirit that descended on him in baptism now leads him to the test. He emerges unscathed as the true and faithful Israel of God. No, he doesn't. He, rem- he comes out the, uh, the unscathed Jesus, the same one who went in, but tested. And he's the one who said to his disciples, 
go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. According to him, Israel was still there. And he says, don't go to the Samaritans and don't go to the Gentiles. So he's saying that as far as he was concerned, Israel as a nation, as a people, was still there. He's not. He's not Israel. Do you see? But 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 what what Goldsworthy has said here is that he emerges from the temptation as the true Israel. Well, if he's the true Israel, what's he telling his disciples to go and evangelize Israel for? I mean, if they if he was the true Israel, then they would have started evangelizing him, wouldn't they? <laughs> Do you see how ridiculous this is? And then he, he, it continues and, and so on. He talks about uh, Jesus is the true prophet heralding God's kingdom. Okay, so. Jesus fulfills the role of priest. Not Levitical priest, he doesn't. Uh, the kingship of Christ begins with the fact that he is quite literally a descendant of David. Well, that's good. We are on literal ground at least for a minute there. <laughs> And that he fulfills the prophetic expectations of the Davidic Messiah. Again, we're on literal ground, just for a, a bit, a brief spell here. Okay, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are seen as a proclamation of his lordship and a fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel. I'm sorry? Seen by who? Not by the disciples, because the disciples asked him after he was raised in, Isaiah, in Acts 1.6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If they'd have believed he was Israel, they wouldn't have been asking him about restoring the kingdom to the nation of Israel, would they? Now he, but, but look at the language here. The language is, Jesus is declared... Oh, sorry, Jesus is, uh, the, the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are seen as a proclamation of his lordship and a fulfillment of a covenant promises to Israel. Not by his disciples. Not by the Apostle Paul. Look, I mean, folks, look at, look at the book of Acts, okay? Chapter 26. Paul before Agrippa. Now, let's read from verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently my manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem. All the Jews know they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promises 
made by God, the hope of the promise, sorry, made by God to our fathers. To this promise, Jesus is now the new Israel. Actually, no. Our twelve tribes. What do you mean, Paul? Hold on a minute. Have you not got the memo? There's no such thing in the twelve tribes now. There's no such thing as the nation of Israel now. Okay? You haven't, Paul hasn't read Graham Goldsworthy, obviously. <laughs> because, because Goldsworthy is very clear. I mean, Come on, man. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus are seen as a proclamation of his lordship and a fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel. Jesus is declared, he goes on, Son of God in his resurrection, not only is a new Israel raised from the death, from death, but the king of Israel is also proclaimed. Is he? Well, look at the texts. Acts 2. Acts 2. Now this is this is a kind of a tricky one. I will give you that. Acts two verses thirty to thirty two. Now this is where progressive dispensationalists uh, kind of they, they're all over this this part, but let's read it. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to give him, uh, give him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. It's talking about David. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which you are all witnesses. What they do is they say, see, raise up Christ to sit on his throne, and then talks about raising up in the resurrection. Yeah? Verse 32. So they're saying that the raising up in the resurrection is the raising up to sit on the throne of David. Do you see that? Now, progressive dispensationalists also go there and they say, well, David, uh, sorry, Jesus is on the throne of David now. And they go there for a proof text. But it doesn't say that, folks. It doesn't say that Jesus is on David's throne now. Okay? This is prophetic. And we're in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 3... Verses 19 through 21, uh, Peter preaches to the Jews in Israel and says, if you'll believe, he'll send Jesus back and the times of restoration from the Lord will come. That's when Jesus will set up on his throne. In other words, this idea here in the early uh, verses of Acts, the chapters of Acts, is still hoping that Israel will repent and receive Jesus. And if they do, Jesus will come back and he'll reign on David's throne. But the resurrection is not the same as the enthronement. 
Okay? But he has raised up Jesus. And Jesus will sit on David's throne. Yes? So he's talking about the resurrection all the way through here, but he isn't talking about the fact that Jesus is now on David's throne. <clears throat> but according to, uh, to Goldsworthy, that's what he's talking about. Uh, as again, not only is a new Israel raised from, the death, from death, but the king of Israel is also proclaimed. Well, he wasn't proclaimed as king there. Let's try verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both King and Christ. No! Lord and Christ. Nothing about the kingship there. Chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up to Israel, for Israel, a king, Jesus. No, I think it says a saviour, Jesus. Do you see what three suppositions can do to your reading of the Bible? Okay? Let's try again. Chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. <coughs> Excuse me. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Uh, sorry, can anyone point out to me in that passage where it says that, that uh, Jesus is now reigning on David's throne? And it says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Do you see that? Okay. I mean, that's a um, quotation from Isaiah uh, 55, I believe, yes? Okay, let's have a look at Isaiah 55. <clears throat> Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and come who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. 
So what's he what's he referring to? He's referring to a covenant. Okay? And probably the Davidic covenant there. But but he's also talking about uh salvation here as well, which is not the Davidic covenant, it's the new covenant that's in Christ, okay? And since the preaching here has got to do with salvation, okay, and not the kingship, he's probably talking about salvation, the new covenant, okay? But what he isn't doing is saying that right now Jesus is reigning on David's throne. Do you see how, do you see how they're using these texts? Okay, these texts do not say what they want them to say. But to to read these guys, if you're not paying attention, you'll get carried away by this because they're they're so dogmatic. I mean, they tell you, "This this is what's proclaimed. And then they give you the text. And if you don't go to those texts looking for the proclamation, you might just think that at the baptism of Jesus, God actually said that Jesus was the new Israel. So, I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. And uh, I don't think much to it, quite honestly. I don't think much to it. And it's, it's based on, this, on these rotten presuppositions. Um, yes, Israel's God's son and Jesus is God's son. Yes, Israel is God's servant and Jesus is God's servant. But Jesus is an Israelite. Okay? Moreover, Jesus, according to Isaiah 49.8 and 49.5 through 8, okay, Jesus is the new covenant, or is a covenant, and there's a covenant of salvation, the covenant of salvation is the new covenant. So Jesus is the new covenant to bring back, not just bring salvation to the Gentiles, but also bring back the people of Israel. So yes, Gentiles have to be in the new covenant, who is Jesus, and Israel has to be in Jesus, who is the new covenant. That, isn't that what I taught? I've taught you, if Jesus is the new covenant, you don't get salvation unless you're in him, in some way. Now, there are certain promises in him that are given to the church that are not given to Israel. But that's covenantal. Okay, these promises, many of them are not given to Gentiles or to the church, but other promises are. Well, why don't we just believe God and just let him sort the mess out if we think it's a mess? It's not, I don't think it's a mess at all. I just think it's uncomfortable for us because we want everything, you know, on our level. We don't want God doing anything that's surprising. We don't want God doing anything that's outside of our comfort zone. Okay? Which is why, you know, these people, they say, well, you guys, what you, you wooden literalists believe is you believe that in the millennium, the glory, there are glorified saints from the church age, they're glorified, they've got their everlasting glorified bodies and they're walking around and then you've got these people who are dying in the millennium because according to Zechariah 8 and according to 
uh, Isaiah 65 and 66, you have old people and you have young people that die at 100. Okay? And sinners die at 100 and, and you know. So you have people dying and you have people aging. That's weird. That's really strange. You know, how can you believe that? Well, I believe it because it's what it says. It's not, it's not up for grabs for me. It's like, I didn't write this stuff, you know? If you'd have written it, you wouldn't have written it that way. You would have written everybody glorified and, and, and there's just one big church and everyone's in Christ who's the new Israel. You would have written it that way. But guess what? God didn't write it that way. It's not our job to go saying, oh, these are types and these are shadows and, and Israel, the Old Testament saints, they didn't expect all of this stuff, but now we have more light and we interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. Of course, meaning we interpret the Old Testament by our interpretation of the New Testament. Okay? And our interpretation of the New Testament is that uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 is about the church, and the book of Revelation is about the church, and especially the 12 tribes of Israel in, um, in uh, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. That's the church. Okay? And Jerusalem, uh, that's, you know, that's really, really is Jerusalem because, you know, I mean, the nation of Israel are, are baddies. But the woman in chapter 12, that's the church. I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of what they do. They turn everything away from what it's actually saying and they say, every, this is a type, this is a shadow, or this is apocalyptic language. They've got an answer for everything, but as long as the answer isn't what it says. Okay? As long as if the if if it cuts across what they've already said, God has got to, you know, be like, and and salvation's got to be like. It doesn't matter what it says. They've got a whole story for you, okay? They've rewritten for God, just so that you'll understand what God really meant. And I know this sounds facetious and so on, but folks, we're talking about the Word of God here. Okay, these are good men, these are godly men, but they're inattentive and they have allowed their, and I'll say this quite plainly and bluntly, they have allowed their unaided, natural, fleshly reason to interpret or to have the interpretative upper hand over the text of Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit didn't say this stuff. Not this stuff. Type shadow and all that stuff. Didn't say that. That's them. You've got to know the difference. And it doesn't matter how it's couched in whatever nice pious terms it is and how many great godly men uh, have believed it. I don't care. God didn't say it. And I've talked to you and i said... If God said it, particularly in a covenant, you better pay attention to the covenant because a covenant is an amplification of God's speech about something really, really important, which is why he made the covenant. And he made the covenant so you wouldn't argue about what it means. But if the covenants are all 
you know, wax noses, okay, and you can do anything with them, then, well, whose interpretation do we have in the end? Do we have God's? Or do we have man's? Do you see? This is, this is what it comes down to. All right. So, I think that there is a case. Uh, let me, can I get rid of this? You know, because of, of, of uh, the, especially the servant stuff and uh, a few other things, I think there is a case where Jesus uh, can stand for Israel. Okay? But he stands for Israel not as a replacement for the nation. He stands for Israel because he is the Israelite and Israelites hope, the hopes of Israel's national hopes are all in him. Okay? But they're not in him as a physical human being per se. In other words, they're not, it's not dependent on him having new Israelites, you know, marrying and having new Israelites. Of course not. Uh, but the, the people of Israel one day will believe in him. They will look upon him whom they pierced and they will repent and they will be saved just as Jeremiah says by the new covenant. Yeah? So it's all in him, isn't it? He's their Messiah. So in a sense he can stand for them just as the king, particularly you know, if, if he's reigning can stand for the nation. In fact, we know that from Daniel chapter 7, where the horns are either kings or kingdoms. The horns of the fourth beast. Yeah? So it's not a problem. Unless you're trying to read your own theology into it. Okay? Which is what these good men are doing. Alright. Any questions on that? Yes, this is the majority. No, all through the the history of the church, we've had this. But this stuff, um, um, it's being nuanced much more in the last, particularly the last fifty years. It's been nuanced a great deal more, so it's a lot more sophisticated than it used to be. It used to be this. It used to be right, right in your face. That, uh, you know, God's all through with Israel. And the church, and the new people of God and the church have replaced Israel. Okay, you can find that in John Owen, the Puritans, you can find it, uh, in, you know, Calvin, you can find it in, um, um, you know, a, a number of, any number of, of the older writers come, come out that and say that. But, in the last 50, 75 years and so on, they've, they've gone on to this. Well, no, he, because of, I think, attacks by people saying, you're replacement theologians, you know, and that's not a nice thing. You know, it's nice, not a nice thing to be called. So now they've kind of nuanced it and said, no, no, no. 
you don't understand that the true Israel has always been the, the believers. Yeah? So we're just a continuation. The church is a continuation of the true Israel. Do you see? That's how it works. But it's the same thing. They use the same arguments. And as I said, they all go to Matthew 21 um, and uh, they all stumble right there because they all say where, where Jesus says, um, you know, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to another generation that deserves it. I mean, my, my paraphrase. They all say, okay, so a kingdom is taken from Israel and given to the church. Well, that's replacement theology. That's what you really believe, you see? So, let's have a look at texts. And for this, I'm, I'm uh, using some of the research done in this book, All Things New, by Carl B. Hawk, Jr. And this is a pretty good book. Uh, he's a, what would be called a progressive dispensationalist, so I do disagree with things that he says in the book, but he has some very good material uh, in the book, particularly has a, an excellent uh, chapter on the term Israel in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to read, don't worry, I'm not going to read uh, a whole bunch of stuff uh, from you, but he, he does say that there are undisputed passages in uh, the New Testament, okay? And then there are disputed passages, and he says, out of the 45 occurrences of Israel in the Gospels and Acts, only two are disputed concerning whether the term includes Gentiles. This is page 268. The two texts are Matthew 19.28 and Luke 22.30. So we can look at those two, can't we? Matthew 19.28. Okay, so let's uh, let's write up here what we're looking for. Okay, that um, Israel includes Gentiles. Okay, this is kind of this is this is what we're we're aiming at here. So we're trying to find a proof, a text in the New Testament that that proves this. For us, okay. Now, do you any of you remember my rules of affinity? Okay, the rule. Of course, you don't. So, uh, the rules of affinity are okay. A C one, okay. A category one or correspondence one, okay, is that you have a direct correspondence between the text, and I'll just put here the text of scripture. Um, and a statement that you make about the text of Scripture. Okay? So, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is the statement. Okay? is the text. And your statement is God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's a direct C1 correspondence. Yes? Okay. C2 is where you don't have a direct correspondence, but you have an inevitable correspondence. And the inevitable correspondence would be something um, inevitable 
where the Bible says the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, but God is one. Well, if that's true, they're all God. Yes? That's inevitable. Yeah? So that's the C2. And I've said before on this, okay, that basically all of the major doctrines, I mean the unarguable doctrines of the Christian faith are either C1s or C2s. All of them. Then you have C3s. Now these are the ones we argue about. Okay, often. Um, this, a good example of this is like the rapture. Is it pre-trib? Is it post-trib? We'll be looking at that uh, next week. <laughs> is it pre-trib, post-trib? Is it pre-wrath, mid-trib? What is it? Okay. Well, there's just not enough information, really, to get certainty. So you have an inference to the best explanation. This is your scientific stuff, okay? Theorizing. An inference to the best explanation. You gather your data. You say, this is the best explanation I can come up with with the least problems. Yeah? All of the doctrines of uh, classical dispensationalism, traditional dispensationalism, and biblical covenantalism, my stuff, they're all C1s, C2s, or C3s. Okay? But then you have C4s, and you have C5s. And we'll put these two together. This is where, uh, this is what we've been doing. Okay, where you've been going to text and they've said it says something and he doesn't actually say it. Okay, so these are deductive. Okay, this is completely deductive. Down here, infant baptism is an example of that. Yeah? The church being the new Israel is an example of that. Uh, the days of Genesis 1 being millions of years is an example of that. The flood being local is an example of that. Yeah? All this stuff down here. And you shouldn't be doing this. But guess what? For many of our Reformed friends, this is where they, this is where they camp down here. Okay, the church is the new Israel, infant baptism, you know, I mean, this is where they are. I'm trying to think of another one and, and uh, it escapes me right now. But they're, they're, they're down here. You shouldn't be down, you shouldn't be doing theology down here. Okay, because this has got nothing to do with the tech. Here, not only do, do these C4s and C5s, not only, oh yeah, the uh, limited atonement is another one. Okay, down here. Not only do the texts not say it, but there are other texts which say the opposite. Okay? You say God only died for the elect. And uh, John says in 1 John 2.2 2, that Christ has made the propitiation uh, for us, not only for us, but for the whole world. It's like the text is saying one thing and the theology is saying something else and they're having a little bit of an argy-bargy here. 
Okay, one of them's got to give. So that this is why you know this stuff is useful. So here, here's your statement. Okay, so we're going to try and determine: is it C1, C2, C3, or one of these down here? All right. <clears throat> okay. Now I've forgotten the text. It was Matthew 19 and verse 28. We'll start from verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay. This is what we're supposed to be proving. Israel includes the Gentiles. Because the twelve tribes of Israel, okay, isn't the twelve tribes of Israel according to our millennialism and their interpretation. Because you see, in the regeneration, which is the restoration of the world under the Jesus after his second coming, and they all agree with that, by the way. There isn't any future hope for the 12 tribes of Israel. They're either included in the church or they're not included at all. And the church is the new Israel. So, what are we going to... Is this a C1? Is the... Yeah. No. This is not a C1, okay? So, it fails just to qualify as a direct proof. Or is it a C2? Is it inevitable? No, okay. C2, that goes to. Is it the inference to the best explanation? Is there a better explanation than this? Hey, how about the fact that he's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel? That seems to be pretty clear. Not only that, but in Acts chapter 3, you get Old Testament, uh, New Testament scholars like F.F. F. Bruce saying that Palingonacea uh, which is translated regeneration in Matthew 19:28. It's basically a synonym for what Peter talks about when he talks about the restoration of all things in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. He says that's talking about the same thing. Well, okay. Who is Peter preaching to? Jews in Israel. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of our fathers. He's talking to Israel. So is this a C3? Nope. It's not a C3. Where are we? Okay, we're down where we shouldn't be, folks. We're in deduction land. Okay? Not only is, I mean, there's, there's no connection with what they're saying with this, with the text of Scripture at all. This has nothing to do with, uh, well, I didn't put the text there. Okay? But it has nothing to do with Matthew 21, was it 18? 21, 18? 
Sorry, it has nothing to do with that. 28. Well, it has nothing to do with verse 18 either, but neither does anything. Okay. Uh, nothing to do with verse 28. Oh, sorry. All right. So, just for the camera to get this right. Okay? We're just going to roll back. So, this statement here has nothing to do with Matthew 19, 28. All right? All right. There's another chance, though, in the Gospels. Luke 22, 30. Luke 22.30 Context, verse 28 But you are those who have continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the twelve of the, on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what are we trying to say here? That this Israel here doesn't mean the nation of Israel; that it also it means the Gentiles, the church. Do I? I mean, what is this? Is this a C one, a C two, a C three? Again, where are we? We're down here again. Okay? There's no affinity between this and... Why don't I actually write the text down? Luke, where is it? 22.30. There's no affinity. Somebody's reading their theology into these texts. They're just... They're scouring the Gospels for something, some little tidbit that they can say, ah, you see what? This really proves this. No, it doesn't. Um, Uh, Let's see. Was I going to... Who am I quoting? Who's he, who's he quoting here? Nowhere. All right. How about in uh, the Paul's epistles? Okay, so we dealt with the two in the Gospels. What about Paul's epistles? There are three. Romans 9, 6... I'll actually write them down here so I won't forget. I mean, I know these anyway. Romans 9, 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 18. And everybody's favourite, if you're Reformed, Galatians 6, 16. Okay. Now, you know, the, you can 
we can we can look at, at some others as well. He, he, expends, he extends it to um, two others as well. So Romans nine six. Let's go there. Now in Romans nine through eleven, Paul is dealing with the issue of Israel and the covenant promises to the nation of Israel. If well, you know, since we got the church and salvation in the church and so on, there's this new thing. What about God's promises to Israel? That's what he's dealing with here. So nine six says this. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed will be called. Well, that should settle it, shouldn't it? Because Gentiles are not related to Isaac. They might be related spiritually to Abraham and Abraham's faith, but they are not related to Isaac. Okay? But... Is this proving that Israel now includes Gentiles? Well, if you're not careful, you see, you can see how they can get that out of there. They're not all Israel that are of Israel. Oh, that means that you they are of Israel if they're a certain kind of person. A believing person. You see? But Paul's not saying that because Paul's left off of the issue of the church and Gentiles now. Now he's dealing with Israel. And he's going to bring in the Gentiles as a foil, okay, throughout his argument, but his focus is on the nation of Israel in this this section. And he's what he's saying here is is a very clear clearly understood thing. Okay? That just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're going to get saved. That's what the Pharisees thought. But they were, they were Israelites, but they weren't true Israelites because they didn't believe in Jesus. And a true Israelite will believe in the true Messiah, will they not? But they're still Israelites. You have to be an Israelite to be an Israelite. Or let's put it this way. You, in order to be a saved Israelite, you have to be a lost Israelite. Yes? But you don't go through, um, it's not like going through passport control and you go in an Israelite and you come out <laughs> a member of the Gentiles or a member of the church. No, you're an Israelite. Now, you might be a saved Israelite included in the church, but you're still an Israelite. Do you see? That's all he's saying here. First Corinthians ten eighteen. In fact, let me let me just read on that. I, I like what what uh, Hawk says, page two seventy two. Paul's point in this passage is that physical descent from Jacob alone is not sufficient for the fulfilment of God's promises to his people Israel. This physical birth must be accompanied by a spiritual birth. But Paul is talking about Jews, not Gentiles. The real contrast Paul is making is, quote, not between physical descent and spiritual adoption, but between the true Israel consisting of Jews who received the promise by faith and the Old Testament consisting of Jews who do not. 
quoting uh, Floyd Hamilton here, who was, was an amillennialist. He even understood that. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians 10.18. This won't take us too much longer, as long as I stop warbling. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar. Okay, well, he's talking here about the Lord's table, yes? And he's saying, observe, pay attention to Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Well, if he's talking about Israel according to the flesh, he's certainly not talking about Israel including the Gentiles, is he? He's talking about sacrifices and altar. And uh, uh, Hock says this, the difficulty with this verse is not the term Israel found in it, but the following phrase, according to the flesh, that is attached to it. It is there, is there an implied Israel according to the Spirit in this phrase? If so, what is this Israel according to the Spirit? Is it the church? Do you see? Again, we're not looking at straightforward stuff. We're kind of fencing stuff around the text, aren't we? Okay, but but um, he goes through a, a bunch of of uh, views here. But uh, at the end, he says, even if a katanuma is implied uh, according to the spirit, yes it still needs to be demonstrated that such a phrase refers to the church that includes Gentiles. The correlative may simply distinguish between two ethnic Israels, one composed of believing Jews and the other composed of unbelieving Jews. Which is what we expect from Paul, who's a Jew, a believing Jew. Okay, Who was, in Romans 9 at least, grieving for his people, Israel. Okay, not in First Corinthians 10, but you know, you know, he felt like that way about it. So again, are we at uh, Romans 9:6? You know, we might be generous and talk about a C3. Okay, but is it an inference to the best explanation? No, there's a better explanation. He's talking about um, Israel believing Israel as opposed to unbelieving Israel, and so. We might want to argue around, is this a C3? But I think in the end, both of these ended up, end up looking like C4s. Because in, in both of these, you see, in both of these, you have to go beyond what the text is saying and you have to introduce something that Paul doesn't introduce. So that means you're, you're going one further step away. And that's what I think brings you into the territory of, um, you know, just pure deduction. You're, you're, it's not what the text says at all. <clears throat> Galatians 6.16. Oh, this is, this is um, I know we've done this. Okay, but Galatians 6.16, I mean, they love this. They love this verse. And again, what they do when they quote this verse... Um, and when, when you come across it you want to tear your hair out or actually you want to tear their hair out <laughs> I mean in love <laughs> but uh, it's like 
Hold on a minute. How can you be so dogmatic here? Here's the text. It says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And they say, there you go, there's a proof text that uh, the church is the Israel of God. And they will even, some of them, translate the Kai and there, which means and, as its secondary meaning as of even. And of course, if you translate it even, and you have to have a good reason for translating it even, okay? Not because you want to translate it even, because it suits your theology, but actually the context demands it. Then, um, it, it completely readjusts that meaning of that passage, because those who uh, peace and mercy are upon are the Israel of God, if you translate it as even the Israel of God. But if you translate it as you ought to, as a straightforward and, then that's a different, that's a separate view. Now again, Paul is an Israelite. He longs for the salvation of Israel. Okay? He's dealing with a bunch of Israelite rogues who are coming into the church and perverting the gospel. But not all Israelites are doing that. He wants believing Israelites. They are the Israel of God. What's so difficult to believe about that? Unless you're trying to force it to mean anything. Now, uh, they all go here, but, but the leading New Testament scholars... Okay, when they get here and when they're doing honest exegesis and, it, you know, the whole raft of, of, of liberal scholars and, you know, conservative scholars, when they get here, they say and or Kai should be translated and. He's talking about two distinct peoples here. They recognize, the exegetes recognize how this verse should read. It's only those people with a predisposition to make the church into Israel that want it to mean something different. And they're very dogmatic about it. They'll just shoot it out as a proof text. Um, He goes into this quite a lot and and, um, there's there's no reason to to go into this. So Ephesians 2.12 is another one. Uh, by the way, 6.16, Galatians 6.16 cannot be a C3. Okay, provisionally you might want to give it a C3 and then argue about the translation of Kai, but the weight of the evidence is against the translating of Kai as even. Okay, overwhelmingly it's for the translation and. And uh, therefore this again slips down into a a C4 deduction. It's not the best explanation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. Verse 11. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, giving, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And they say brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers and now we've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, But the commonwealth of Israel isn't the nation of Israel. It's the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, The commonwealth of the United Kingdom isn't the United Kingdom. Okay? Canada isn't the United Kingdom. Don't know if you didn't know that, but it's not. Okay? This is ridiculous. I mean, the, the thinking is just ridiculous to me that they can't tell the difference here. This is not difficult stuff. So we move on. <coughs> and uh, in uh, just a few more in Hebrews through Revelation. Okay? And... Uh, <coughs> There are just three. And two of them are laughable. But one of them is Hebrews 8, 8 and 10. So Hebrews chapter 8. So Hebrews chapter 8. This is talking about the Aaronic priests and so on. Verse 8 through 10. This is a quotation from the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from the, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and disregarded them, I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in the, on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And it says, you know, they'll each know um, the Lord. <clears throat> and in, the interpretation that the writer gives is that when he says that a new covenant it's obvious that the old covenant is obsolete and replaced by the new covenant. That's his um, argument in verse 13. So, here's the thing. And, and, and this is... This is uh, I, I can understand this. I'm going to give this a C3. Okay? So, the Hebrews 8, which I haven't written down yet. Well, I'll put it over here. Okay? So, Hebrews 8... 8 to 10, I'm going to give this a C3. Alright? Why? Because Hebrews is surely written to Hebrew Christians, isn't it? If it's written to Hebrew Christians, they're part of the church. Okay? So, since there's neither Jew nor Gentile in the church, then what applies to them must apply to the Gentiles in the church and therefore the new covenant promises to Israel and and Judah are fulfilled in the church. But how many steps away, how many steps of deduction have I just taken? Okay, I'm about four steps away from my, from where I began. Okay, which is 
Hebrews is written to Hebrews Christians. Okay. So, Jeremiah 31, which is a New Covenant passage, can apply to Hebrew Christians because they're Hebrews. They're Israelites. Yes? So, there's no problem, is there, in applying Jeremiah 31 to Hebrews since it's written to Hebrews. Yes? But then if you start to say, oh, but, but Hebrews are part of the church and Gentiles are part of the church, okay, and then you, another step, and is neither Jew nor Gentile, and therefore these promises uh, that are applied to the Hebrews are applied to the whole of the church, and therefore the church, do you see how many steps away you're getting? You're no longer, okay, in where the text is, is taking you. This is pure deduction. Now it is a C3, well, by a C3, some people might, may believe that those are, it's not an inference, it's inferences to the best explanation. They may, be, may hold that. I don't. I think it's just straightforward. Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. You've got to be Hebrew in order for this letter to be written to you. Now, just as every other book in the Bible is useful for everybody, okay, it doesn't mean that everything written in the New Testament is for you. Because there's stuff in the Gospels that's not a Christian shouldn't be doing. Yeah? And there's stuff in the book of Revelation that is not applicable to the Christian, I would argue. And the same with the book of Hebrews. Are you okay with that? So... Again, although we start off making this a C3, it's not actually a C3 because it gets bumped out by a more straightforward explanation, which has fewer problems with it. You see that? And actually, I'll go one further. And you might think this is me going in zany land. I don't think so. I think Hebrews makes more sense as an epistle if you stick it in the tribulation. And if you stick it in a tribulation, you don't have any problems with that, uh, you know, all of those warnings about losing your salvation. And then all that about entering into rest starts to make sense. Now, there are, there are, there are a few issues with that, okay? Um, it does talk about the church at the end there. But church, that word, ecclesia, only means called out assembly. It doesn't have to be translated church. Okay, but it certainly then this quoting Jeremiah thirty one thirty through thirty four makes absolute sense. Yeah, waiting for him who comes from, will appear a second time from heaven makes absolute sense. You don't have to take that one. That's just uh, I, I think there's something to that. All right, but you don't need that one in order to say that that the Hebrew explanation is better Revelation 7.4 I'm not even going to go there but you can turn there because it's daft Revelation 7.4 is that telling you that Israel includes the Gentiles? Yeah. 
What's it saying to you? It's pretty clear about who it's talking about, isn't it? It's talking about 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? I'm not a member of the, any of the tribes of Israel. And neither are you. And neither is any Gentile. That kind of rules us out, I would say. You know? Uh, as he describes it here, he, uh, he doesn't hold to this, by the way. He, he, he's arguing against this. Um, but he's saying that uh, Beckwith says that this is an allusion to Zechariah 9.4. Now, Zechariah 9.4 is this uh, weird guy with an ink pen, okay? He's kind of marking people before the destruction comes. In the context of Ezekiel, those faithful believers in ethnic Israel who had the mark of God on their foreheads were to be preserved from the coming judgment upon Jerusalem by the Chaldeans. Kyle, he's a uh, commentator, points out the parallel with Exodus 12, 13-22 with regard to the placing of the blood on the door frames in view of the coming plague. In terms of historical precedent, an exegesis that posits another preservation of ethnic Israel during a time of judgment would have higher probability than one that does not, unless any future for ethnic Israelis ruled out on theological grounds. So, again, we're down here, aren't we? Those people that want to rule out a future for ethnic Israel on theological grounds, they're, they're down here again, because there's a better explanation. Last one, folks. Revelation 21.12. Revelation twenty one twelve. <clears throat> also she, this is New Jerusalem, had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and the names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. This is New Jerusalem. But if New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, okay, and that's the church, then what would the names of the tribes of Israel be inscribed on the church for? Unless, of course, the, uh, the, there's a hint there that the church is actually Israel now. Okay? That's, that's the thinking. Okay? And I'll just, I'll just read this. Following the approach of Sweet, and he's a commentator, and others, to the book of Revelation, it is possible to regard the reference to the twelve tribes of Israel as indicating the unity of the, quote, whole Israel of God, the church. But it is just as possible, and more in harmony with the usage of Israel elsewhere in the New Testament, to retain the ethnic meaning for Israel here. The inclusion of the twelve tribes of ethnic Israel in the New Jerusalem shows the unity of God's people throughout redemptive Israel history. Because the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he says here, ethnic Israel and Gentiles from every nation on earth joined together as redeemed of God in the eternal city. The twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the Lamb aptly depict the final unity of all God's people, in spite of the distinctions within the people that have been a part of the historical development of God's redemptive program. I will go further than that, and I will say, quite simply, that 
uh, the gospel went out to the Jews first. Before any Gentiles. The, the, the church began with Jews from the twelve tribes. I mean, it's speculative, but it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going out on a limb here to say that of the thousands of people that were Jews that were saved in Acts 2 and Acts 3, that there weren't representatives of all 12 tribes of Israel in there. The Jew, I mean, the foundation of the church is Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. That's, a, I mean, that to me, that's a better explanation. C2 or C1? That'd be a C3. C3? Yes, an inference to the best explanation. Um, <clears throat> so um, he he uh, quotes an amillennialist, William E. Cox, here, who says this. Uh, quote, that the Christian church replaced Israel is obvious when one notes that the Jewish Gentile Christian church of the New Testament is given the same titles which the new, that which in the Old Testament were given to national Israel, end quote. And, uh, you know, this is a very common argument. But, as he says, uh, Hock says, commonality does not demand identity any more than commonality between the 13 original colonies and England meant the two were the same. Of course, this is, this is, this is a, a category error. This is just, you know, this is a logical misstep. But these people are just bound and determined to, to prove this even though they can't prove it with any text of scripture. We've just hit on the best, their best chances there. I mean, the, the Romans 2 one as well, which we did covered last week, is another one that they'll pull out of their hat. But, um, folks, there isn't anything in their hat, okay? Other than something of their own devising. It's not in the Bible. Everywhere in the New Testament, Israel means Israel. Okay? And so, uh, there is no ground at all, there is no ground for uh, their view that the church is a new Israel. The, the Bible just doesn't teach it. It's them. They get dogmatic about this. I mean, to them, it's just like, um, what do you mean? Are you dumb or something? I mean, how, how come you don't know that the church has replaced Israel? What, what's the problem with you? And it's, it's like, you expect me to prove it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yes. And then they'll go through all of these, that is what they do. They go through all these deductions. And then they, with their deductions, they go searching for proof texts, which don't actually say what they want them to say, which is why the rules of affinity are so helpful. You, know, you see? Because you, you, if you get, do this to them, they can put... You, you see where they put... Say, is it a direct statement? No. Is it an inevitable statement? No. Is it the inference to a best explanation? Well, many times they're going to have to say, no. So you're down here. 
Well, you can get as dogmatic as you like down here because you're in no man's land as far as I'm concerned. You're not with the text of the Bible anymore. It's you writing your own Bible. It's as simple as that. Any uh, observations or uh, questions before we close? I'm listening to you, Paul, and uh, it's very scholarly. And, and, but I'm sitting around the, just the guy who sits in the church and the people who are, come to church and they're looking for something maybe fits where they think they are. My question, I think, is what, what are the dangers of this teaching in the seminaries and going into the, to the evangelical churches today? I'm assuming that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and in, has it become any kind of an issue in Christendom other within some of the conservative evangelicals? Otherwise, they're all walking off the cliff. Yeah, well, this this teaching is the main teaching that you'll find in most of the mainline evangelical seminaries. The teaching that Israel, uh, the church is the new Israel. This is what's being taught to students in in the seminaries, Okay. Um, so this is taught if you in Presbyterian denominations, Dutch Reformed denominations, many Baptist denominations. This is what's taught. Reformed denominations teach this. Okay, they teach this stuff, and then um, you know dispensational uh, seminaries. And there's very few of them. Master's seminary is one of them, uh, but, but not many. Uh, but dispensational seminaries, Tyndale Seminary where I used to teach, um, they would um, hold to, to basically to our view. Um, but you're not going to find this. Even Dallas Seminary and places like that, um, what's going to be taught is progressive dispensationalism. And progressive dispensationalism is... Progressive dispensationalism is basically that uh, Jesus is now reigning on the throne of David. Okay? And that many of them believe that in the future there is one people of God. Okay? Not two or three distinct peoples of God, which is, I, I teach three distinct peoples of God. Uh, dispensationalism often teaches two distinct people, peoples of God. But they would say one. And if there's one distinct people, uh, people of God only, then you're going to label that the church. And therefore, in the end, okay, the everlasting covenants to Israel are not everlasting covenants to Israel. <laughs> Do you see? So you, not all progressives believe that, but many of them do. <laughs>